the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those of you who haven't heard the show before, you know, welcome. This show is in two parts and not at all equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning, elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court. That's avoiding going through probate or guardianship court. And as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, we do seminars on a regular basis, and we're going to be doing seminars in Brooklyn and Queens at the end of November. So if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you want to ask me those questions, show up in one of those seminars. Matt here will have the, have the times in our commercial here later. But, you know, this is Veterans Day weekend. There's sometimes some confusion between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Memorial Day was established to honor the fallen dead that served in the service of our country during time of war. Veterans Day is to honor the veterans who are alive today. And in memory of that, we're going to be talking to two veterans. One friend of ours, Alan Wahlberg, and he's a Vietnam War veteran. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about the Vietnam War over the years, so we're going to correct that with Alan today. And then we have the current commander of Fort Hamilton, Colonel Zismus, and, and he spent his lifetime defending this country, and he's now currently the commander of Fort Hamilton. We've had previous Fort Hamilton commanders on, like Colonel Davidson, who later became deputy commandant at West Point, and Colonel Mike Gould, who's been on the show more than a few times. As far as estate planning and elder law, if any of you would like to schedule an appointment with me at one of our offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan, please feel free to schedule a, conference, a call. Our phone number is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We do not charge for the first consultation. The initial consultation is free. We talk it over and go from there. And again, there's no fee for the initial consultation. But talking about estate planning, Elder Law, Beth, do you have an email question? Um, we listen to your show on 570 AM radio all the time, and we support the mission station. We have a very delicate situation here. I'm the oldest out of five, and my youngest brother was my mother's caretaker and executor of her will. I know my mother had left life insurance policies, but my brother says she only had one worth $5,000. Also, in 2007, she took a reverse mortgage on our childhood home in Brooklyn for $700,000. Back in 2015, without telling us, my youngest brother made her sell the house 
and she received $1.6 million. She paid off the reverse mortgage, the taxes, and purchased another home in Staten Island for $575,000. In the last two years of her life, she develops dementia, and she signed the will dating June 2016, which was only leaving four kids to split the $575,000, which my youngest brother wanted 40%, and we got 20% each. My question is, were we entitled to the sale of our Brooklyn childhood home that was sold for $1.6 million? Where did that $700,000 go? We feel she bought the house my brother lives in now and denies of any wrongdoing. Are we entitled to see our mother's checking and bank accounts for the past 10 years? Is there an audit we can get to see if my brother hid any money to either his wife's account, his son's account, maybe my other's brother's account? Me and my sister feel that we've been left out in the cold and that my other two brothers masterminded something to hide a lot of money from us. We need to know what to do. I hate to say this, but there are a couple of depends here again. One, I gather from the letter that mom is gone, but I'm not 100% sure if she's gone. If she is gone and and the will was probated or offered for probate, the children have a right to an accounting from the executor. They request accounting in the surrogates court, I assume, in Richmond County, Staten Island, and they can demand to see all the papers, records, whatever. Now, one of the problems is that as far as bank records and other records, you can only subpoena up to six years of back records. So the sooner you get involved in this, the better, and you got a shot. Now, whether the will's been offered for probate or not, you may be able to object to it, but I don't think that would be your major gain because the difference between 20% and 25% is maybe not in and of itself paying a lawyer to do that. Uh, you know, that's a strategy question that we may talk about. And also, we have to find out if there's a clause in the will that if you contest the will, you get nothing. So those are things to talk about. Now, if mom's alive and somebody in the family feel feels that mom's been financially abused by a power of attorney, you can go to court and ask the court to appoint a guardian for mom's affairs, and they can go through the records and check them out over the last six years. So it's a question. No matter what, I strongly suggest you see a lawyer because if you, if you believe that wrongdoing has been done, and you know maybe you just start by writing some letters and getting people nervous, but something should be done. And whatever you do, it needs some investigation. But the sooner you get started on it, the better. One of the questions was the will offer for probate. Is it probated? Is mom alive or is mom deceased? And, you know, whatever comes up, we've been there before, and and you can talk it over with us. But my suggestion is you see a lawyer as soon as possible. If you want to schedule an appointment with our office, you're more than welcome to do it. Beth, you know, and this is one of the things, you know, a lot of times these problems can be resolved with a good plan in place. You know, I assume this was always supposed to be four equal shares, but things happen, and, you know, there could be two sides to the same coin. She left more money to the caretaker child because the caretaker child was doing a lot for her. The other thing is maybe the caretaker child took advantage of her. The only thing I would say would lead to me that there was not undue influence by the caretaker child is the fact that the other siblings still got 20%. If somebody's going to take control, somebody's going to exercise their will over mom, they usually would take the whole thing, not leave the others with 20%. So there are a lot of questions here, and it's that's what it is, questions. And sometimes you need somebody who's been there before. And at Connors & Sullivan, that's what we do. We work on estate planning, elder law, and sometimes we work on, we have accountants that work on where money was going. But the sooner the better, because you can't get bank records for more than six years. Changing the subject completely, we have a fundraiser for Father Paul coming up in a few days. It's going to be at the Bayridge Manor, 
on November 15th. Those of you know that listen to our program, we know a lot of our events are held at either the Bay Ridge Manor or the Three West Club. This one's going to be held at the Bay Ridge Manor on 76th Street off Fifth Avenue. And Father Paul Balicki, who's been on this show more than a few times, is going to have a fundraiser to help try to raise money for the Christians in the Middle East. He runs a medical mission there. He's a medical doctor, again, runs a medical mission for refugees, mostly Christians from the Middle East. He takes people in from Syria, mostly Syria right now. That's where the refugees are coming from. And he's involved in a lot of activities. He, he brings Christians, he sponsors them to get visas into the United States. And one of the things he's talking about, you, you know, with some of the Trump travel bans or whatever, it's a lot easier to get Christians through the process than other people because there's exceptions for religious minorities, which you won't hear. And, of course, if you're Christian, you're a religious minority in the Middle East, which is a lot of things you won't hear from other stations or whatever. So Father Paul, he, he takes these refugees, he gets them visa, asylum into the United States. He treats their medical wounds, whatever. He's, he's treated the gas attacks from Assad's chemical gas attacks. And he, he just tries to give them hope. Because that's about all they have left over there, hope. And, and, and it's very poor hope. There's very little bit of a future for those Christians in the Middle East. And Father Paul tries to give them hope, does the best he can. And, you know, we've, we've done shows with him before about his mission. And his mission is to spread the love of Christ among those people he meets. So if you want to support his mission, give us a call. Speak to Monica at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. That's going to be November 15th at 6 o'clock at the Bay Ridge Manor, 5th Avenue in Brooklyn, off 76th Street. And if you come a little bit earlier, you can get a tour of the military miniature collection in our office. And I mean, might as well. People are asking for tours all, all over now since they saw it on uh, <laughs> the, the TV channels, uh, CBS News, New York One, Reader's Digest. I didn't even know they were still publishing Reader's Digest, but apparently somebody read about it there. Uh, and, and actually, you can see one of uh, Father Paul's paintings on display in our office here. So, and, and he's a tremendous artist. I don't know if he's going to be available. He's still in the Middle East today, but I don't know if he's going to be. He's going to have some of his paintings available for auction. But if he doesn't now, he will in the, in the near future. He, we may not have some of his paintings, but the painting that we do have in the office, we have, we have made a copy of it, and we've made some note cards, and they are lovely. And if you would like to be able to go home some, with something very, very nice, we're selling the groups of note cards. And um, remember, we may not be over there physically helping um, the Christians, but we can give Father Paul hope, and, and we can give them hope and send our love and our prayers all the time. All right, we're going to take a break right now. And at the other end of the break, we're going to be talking to our buddy from the Civil War Roundtable, Alan Warburg, about his time in Vietnam. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, November 27th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Then in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S on Wednesday, November 28th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and Finally, at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, on Friday, November 30th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated
complicated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Father Paul Bolecki, Capuchin friar and medical doctor, established a missionary hospital in Lebanon to provide medical care to Christian refugees. He also helps relocate them to safer areas. Connors & Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, is hosting a special fundraiser to help Father Paul and his team purchase supplies, treat their patients, and help them find safe havens. Basically, Father Paul is the last resort for these faithful Christians in the Middle East who've been forgotten by most of the world. Join us on Thursday, November 15th at the Bay Ridge Manor at 476 76th Street in Brooklyn. Meet Father Paul, who'll tell you what's really happening to Christians in the Middle East. Call Monica at 718-238-6500 to reserve your place at this important fundraising event as all of the proceeds will support Father Paul's compassionate mission. 718-238-6500. Again, that's 718-238-6500. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Veterans Day, November 11th. It's a time to remember the service of our veterans. And, you know, on this show, in a lot of cases, obviously, we've talked a lot about the Civil War, World War II, World War I, Korea. But we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Vietnam. And to help me correct that problem is a friend of mine from the Civil War Roundtable, Alan Wahlberg. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you, uh, Mike. <laughs> okay. Go back to Vietnam. You were in the, obviously you were in the service at that time. How, how did you get involved with the service back in, in those days? I was drafted. I was, uh, it, was, it was March 1968. I got my draft notice. The president sent me a nice letter, you know. We like to like to welcome you to the uh, you know United States Army and uh, whatever, and when I got to Fort Hamilton, uh, in uh, you know this is this is during the LBJ was still president, and when I got to the uh, uh, Fort Hamilton, the uh, the Marines were, were, they, at that time the Marines were, were were drafting people were taking the select whoever they wanted from the draft, and luckily they didn't take me. <laughs> So that was that was when I got drafted. Briefly, what happened after you were drafted and before you got to Vietnam? Where'd you serve? Okay, I was I took basic training at, at Fort at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. It was pretty rough. It was not as bad as the Marine Corps boot camp, but it was they would kick. You know, I I was the fastest thing coming out of uh, the truck t- to get my uh, after the receiving station to go to my bunks, but uh, I got kicked. <laughs> you got hammered. It was pretty tough. But uh, it was tough training. It was good training. It, I remember a lot of stuff they taught me. All right. So you do basic training, Fort Jackson, then I think Fort Dix. And I went to Fort Dix, advanced infantry training. And we took us up by bus from Fort Fort Jackson to Fort Dix. And I had my first grits in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, they had a, a vegetable plate we got for lunch. And I was at Fort uh, I took advanced infantry training, at, uh, at uh, as I said, at uh, Fort Dix. And it was it was not bad. Okay. How'd you get to Vietnam? Well, I went through, uh, first I went to Fort Carson, Colorado. I was uh, in a, a 5th Mechanized Division, for a 3rd Brigade. And uh, uh, while I was there, uh, my, my clerical scores were high. They sent me after about a month there. The 1st Brigade went to Vietnam, was sent over to Vietnam, but 3rd Brigade stayed at, at Fort Carson. And then my clerical uh, numbers were pretty good on my tests. So they sent me to Chairs School, T-A-E-R-S, 
That means Army Integrated Equipment Records Maintenance Management System. You can figure that out. You remember that, huh? You're great. Oh, you you can't forget something like that. Uh, I could. (laughs) T-A-E-R-S. How does that come out? And anyway, but I was I thought I'd be able to change my MOS military occupations uh, uh, specialty to uh, you know that that cler- clerical thing, but um, and I had to go to for spec four board, but I never made it. Uh, they came in to, to take uh, guys over to uh, about thousands of guys from Fort Carson to to, uh, to, uh, to Vietnam. And prior to that, I, I was at the. Uh, while well, I was with the uh, in the end of August '68, uh, I was uh, we, we were sent over to uh, to uh, Chicago for the Democratic National Convention. We were specially trained in riot control, very well trained. We were not the National Guard of Kansas or whatever. You get to Vietnam, and what we were talking about was the Battle of Hamburger Hill, right? As best as you can, how do you describe the that to the audience? Well, I wasn't in the 3rd Battalion, 187th Infantry, took most of the casualties. They took about over 60 dead. We didn't take any dead because we came into the battle. We were on the, the, the uh, we were, we were, my battalion's 2nd uh, Battalion, 501st Infantry was on the uh, Laotian border. We were supposed to be cutting the North Vietnamese off while the 3rd Battalion, 187th, landed on the base of the hill. And they started up and they, they were fighting for 10 days. They brought us in and other units as well, uh, independent companies in. To, for, to end the battle, and we surrounded the hill, and we started. Everybody started up, and that was I was in the uh, uh, final day of the battle. My battalion took no casualties in in, in the bat in in the assault itself, uh, because the North Vietnamese were moving away from us down the hill towards the ocean border. So uh, basically, Third Battalion, One Eighty Seven, took very heavy casualties. Some of the independent units had uh, companies. I know one of the guys. I met one of the guys. He they he was almost killed there. It's amazing he didn't not a scratch, but he got through it. And uh, the Vietnamese for an Arvin unit, uh, they took about uh, uh, fifteen dead or more. So and that's pretty substantial casualties for for the company. Especially my company was never more than ninety four men when I was in the whole time I was in Vietnam. That's very low. So uh, we we took the hill, and then they my battalion stayed on uh, stayed on the mountain for five days. They were thinking of making it a fire base. It, it was a horrible place. It was a, it's totally denuded of vegetation, etc. And uh, the first Friday, I remember I'm Jewish. The first Friday was uh, I, re- I figured it out. Sometimes you didn't know what day it was, and I took my prayer book out in this desolate area on top of the, the crest of the hill. I'm, uh, you know, I, I said the uh, my prayers for uh, Sabbath prayers. After about five days, we we uh, they decided not to make it a fire base. It was on right on the side of the the Ashau Valley, northern Ashau Valley, and then they decided to. Uh, we decided to move on. We're going to move to the uh, after that, but prior to that, we had a recon in force. To uh, while I was still on Hamburger, I think it was the second or third day, we had a recon in force to the Laotian border. That meant, uh, except for one company kept on Hamburger Hill, uh, the rest of the battalion moved towards the border, and uh, we ran into heavy con- bunker concentration in below us on a mountain. And uh, as we were moving along the slope of the mountain. Uh, two RPGs hit right in front of me, and I almost, you know, that almost uh, got me. And that's one of the three close calls I had in Vietnam, and took out the whole whole squad right in front of me, literally in front of my nose. The, How large could, is the squad? Because you know, a lot of the listeners haven't people, been in the military. About seven people. We had about seven people in the squad usually. 
usually. So it depends. So if people are moving in and out of the unit, you never know. Anyway, so so I move forward to cover them in the line of march. This is a single line of march. The whole this is the whole battalion. Uh, minus one company that was on hamburger, and then we moved on, and then and we moved forward, and we, we there, there was a bunker's position below us, and I never saw it because I had a ro- uh, heavy bamboo in front of me, but we were all firing. We had a whole battalion firing. We had uh, that's that you're talking about over 300 men. We had uh, gunships. We had artillery. We had. Fighter bombers coming in, making bombing runs, napalm runs. It was amazing. The whole jungle was on fire. The North Vietnamese, one of the guys told me who was able to see the bunkers, told me the North Vietnamese were uh, coming out of the bunkers. The bunkers were on fire. They were coming out and firing RPGs up at us. But I never, I didn't, uh, you know, other than an initial scuffle with them, I didn't have any problems. And uh, then we uh, then we moved back to Hamburger. The next day, uh, I think it was in the afternoon, somebody said, look up. And we saw these little dots in the air, and they, they were coming in with a, an arc, a B-52 arc light attack. Now, people have seen this on TV, but you have to see it in person to really understand what this is like. Because the whole, literally, the, they said the, uh, the B-52s are coming over. They're going to be an attack on that bunker position we just were at uh, fighting the day before. The whole countryside exploded. Really, and and we were almost shook off Hamburger Hill. <laughs> we went up and down. Really, it was amazing. And uh, it's like a like a mini B fifty two attack, a B uh, an a mi- atomic attack, you know, atomic bomb attack. And it was uh, something else. After that, we moved off the uh, we uh, on the about the fifth day, we moved off Hamburg. It was a very hot day. They wouldn't let us sit down. The whole battalion unraveled off the off the mountain, and uh, we moved down the uh, mountain. I had a I didn't realize I had a teeny pebble in my boot. And it, it irritated my foot, and I was on uh, observation post uh, at night, and it got irritated. And I was trying to, as it, it was trying to, it was causing me a lot some trouble. I'm trying to stay off it the next day, and when we were moving up 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 a hill, and I I sprained my other ankle on my other foot, so I was in really bad shape. But I said I had to keep going. We we're carrying over 80 pounds of equipment, and you name it, we were carrying it, and. Uh, Went up the next the next hill, and uh, the next day we uh, I was on a saddle across from the rest of the company, my, uh, me and fourteen other guys or whatever, and we got hit by a North Face came up and hit us uh, with a how how large an attack I don't know, but we lost four out of fifteen men, and I was almost uh, I was I was hit by shrapnel concussion blast, shot two RPGs landed near me. I found out in the morning uh, that I had a bullet hole through my rifle stock. And uh, the guy who was with Lewis Johnson uh, from Kansas City, Missouri, he, he he unfortunately got it in the head, but he had my watch on because I had a, a luminescent dial. He he unfortunately didn't make it. In the morning, I went over to the uh, uh, top sergeant was next to the, this body, which wrapped up already. And uh, you know, I asked, uh, "Can I get my Lewis had my watch on? We need it for uh, security at night because it has a luminescent dial." He said, "No." Once he's dead, that's it. He's, that's whatever he has on him is is his. And I understood that. And I said, okay. I only knew Lewis for a few hours, and uh, he was with another uh, squad uh, platoon. It was just a ad hoc bunch of guys put together for this uh, this night ambush that was on the other part of the, the uh, hill, the saddle. And after that, we moved off, and uh, I was later taken out, and the uh, the battalion surgeon. Uh, uh, had my uh, my a big huge hole made in my right heel, and they took out a 
a, a quarter dollar, uh, huge quarter dollar size, but uh, maybe a half an inch of dead tissue out of my heel. And then a few days later, the top sergeant came in. They put filling in it, and the top sergeant came around and says, is Wahlberg ready to go? And says, uh, they, they said yes and went out, and it fell out. <laughs> but it healed. luckily it healed, so it was okay. And I got through all that. I got through, uh, you know, I had three close calls, I, I, not a scratch. But, uh, you know, the damage, there's damage, you know, from that. Uh, it's the way it is. It's uh, War is not easy. Let me ask you something. You mentioned napalm. What was napalm and what would it do? What was the effect of napalm? It's some kind of petroleum jelly, and it, 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 it sticks. If you've ever seen, read Martin Caden's book on Dres- Hamburg, Dresden, Martin Caden was the, uh, he did a terrific book. It was about 60, 70 years ago on the bombings of uh, Hamburg and Dresden. It's, he, he explained it that people who, who had jumped into the uh, river when it was bombed, they were using phosphorus. Uh, nap- which was napalm. The people, the, the 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 hair was on fire. They they jump into the water in this river near the city, and it would go out. And then they, uh, once they came to the surface to breathe again, it would start up again. It you have to literally scrape it off you, your skin off. You have to scrape your skin off in order to get it out. And there's a famous scene in in in, in the news in in Vietnam where the little girl remembers she's coming out of the village, right. and they accidentally napalm the area. You know, she seems to be uh, recovered from that, and she's a uh, an adult now. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty gruesome kind of weapon. I wouldn't. I certainly. I certainly wanna. Wouldn't wanna. But anything that you know, it, it's death and destruction. After your service, you got involved with uh, what was it? Vietnam veterans against the war. Right, John Kerry. Okay, <laughs> why'd you get involved in that? Well, I felt that uh, my I wasn't that much against why we went into the war because I really didn't have all the knowledge about. The, you know, we didn't know about the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident yet, the exact circumstances of it yet. Uh, I know when it when it when it occurred, uh, I was. I'll, let me explain something. I was. I was. Uh, I did a poll for the Democratic Party when I was 15 years old. They dropped me off at uh, uh, me and a bunch of my friends. They dropped me off my, by myself on at Court Street and um, and uh, Atlantic Avenue, where the where the bank is, the old bank. And I did a poll, and I said, oh, you know, go. I was a red. I came from a liberal Democratic family. I said, you know, go. What is going to? He's going to. They're going to get us into Vietnam, and he's going to blow up the world. And you know, the Democratic Party had the the the, the thing with the, uh, with the you know, uh, the, the 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 atomic bomb and the little the little blonde girl, you know, and all that stuff. And uh, I remember right after that, they had the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And uh, I was watching on TV, Walter Cronkite. We always watch Walter Cronkite on CBS. Uh, I said, oh, let's go get him. I was 15 years old. Let's go get him. You know, and my, and, and, uh, my father said, there's something fishy about this. <laughs> but the thing is, I didn't know all the reasons. My main reason why I was against the war, because I could see from the operations that we did in the southern Ashaw Valley and the northern Ashaw Valley, but especially in the southern, where the squad side, we weren't moving enough. They, I don't know, for some reason, the junior officers didn't get it. They didn't, you have to move. If you don't move, the North Vietnamese, they lived, they, they, you lived and you died, you know, unless the war was over and then you could go home. They were there forever, you know, and they learned their trade. So if you, you were making too much noise or you stay in an area too long, which we did quite often, and we took, and the consequences were very severe. 
I was in a bad action in, in March of 69 where, uh, you know, I could have been, there was another incident where I could have been killed, got very close to getting getting hit or killed. And, uh, but if you don't move, they will know how to fix your position. And we they had, they would set up what we call trail watchers. And trail watchers would, somebody would sit on a trail, one to three men, and with RPG or AK-47s or whatever, or machine guns, and they would, uh, they wait for you to come down the trail. We were always moving in that area, in the Ashaw Valley. We were always moving single file. That meant even if you had a battalion, it would stretch out for three hundred over 300 men. I, after Hamburg Hill, I was battalion point four days after Hamburg Hill. Two days after that, that, that incident I told you about on the saddle, I was battalion point. He said, Wahlberg, you're point today. I said, All right, I, have to, I was point, I was point. I did it. You know, two bad feet, no less. And uh, luckily, I survived. They didn't hit us. But, uh, you know, they knew, they most of the time knew where we were. They could fix us and set up trail watchers to ambush us around, you know, where they thought we would be, be coming up on the trails. So it was, my thing was that uh, if we had trouble dealing with the North Vietnamese, the, the, the Arvins, the South Vietnamese, were going to have trouble with it. And which is, which is, was the case. Uh, you know, and plus the fact that later on Congress cut off a lot of aid, extra, you know, ammunition, et cetera, to the, to the South Vietnamese. That didn't help matters. And, uh, you know, they, I, the North Vietnamese were much tougher and much more uh, ideologically oriented. And uh, whether you whether – you, obviously, I'm against communism, but, uh, you know, they were stuck in it. We had uh, – Guys who uh, who were with defected or captured from the North Vietnamese, and they were operating with us sometimes. You know, we had these. I feel bad for the, some of the guys. One of them was his name was T. When I was going home, I saw him. Uh, he was at the Eighth Aerial Port at Cameron Bay when I was leaving. I happened to run into him, and he was stuck there. And hopefully, he survived after the North Vietnamese took over, uh, won the war in '75. The audience out there, what? How can you best summarize your experience in Vietnam, and what, what what would you tell people about it? Well, war is war. If you get into a war, you try, you better be very careful about it. It's it's you never know the consequences of what happens. You know, at the, during the war and after the war. So it's uh, you you have to be very careful about it. It's it's a, it could be very gruesome. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't, and it's not only just the uh, the combat. The physicality is could be very bad. You know, you read about, uh, when you read about war, you read about uh, Northwest Passage. If you remember Northwest Passage, you know, it, uh, where Rogers Rangers have to go through the uh, upper New York State. Or if, you re- if you've read uh, Arundel, the novel Arundel by the, sa- the, the same author who did uh, Northwest Passage, uh, Roberts, you know, where, where uh, Montgomery and, and, uh, and one of our men, uh, one of, an American, he was a British Officer, uh, one of our uh, go go. Uh, one of our officers went 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 towards the Canadian border in the revol- in the revolution. That's a horrible, you know. That, that, that could be uh, the physicality of it could be uh, gruesome. Not only the combat, but the the brute. The, you know, it could be bad. You know, so if you could avoid war, you try to avoid war. But if you have to fight, you have to fight. There's no, uh, you know, you don't want to wind up. Uh, you know, with the communists or Nazis or whatever telling you what to do all your life. And I believe in freedom. And to me, it, everybody was going on uh, when after the um, the movement uh, for democracy in, North, in, in, Af- in, in the Arab countries, Arab, Arab Spring, 
They, they, everybody kept talking about democracy, democracy, democracy. Well, it's not just democracy. I, I was even talking. I, I'm a member of the New York Military Affairs Symposium, and in Manhattan, meets in Manhattan on Fridays. We had a scholar who was talking about this, and I brought up this point, and he said, "You're right." You know, I said, "Freedom and liberty are more important to me than that, but also than democracy." Itself, democracy could be used. Adolf Hitler used democracy against, uh, you know, uh, and and subjugated Germany and the rest and the rest of Eastern Europe uh, and, and and Europe itself. It's you have to be all, always on your toes. Alan, thank you for bringing history to life. Thank you for your experiences in Vietnam. Good luck. I'll see you soon. I guess next Civil War roundtable. Right, and it's uh, my mic does a great job there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, about almost 50 years ago now, I was inducted into the United States Army at Fort Hamilton. And Fort Hamilton still happens to be here. And we're very pleased to have the commander of the Fort Hamilton base, Colonel Zeesness. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, Fort Hamilton. It's at the, you know, the base of the Verrazano Bridge. Can you, you tell us a little bit about the history of the fort? Well, you, um, we, you know, we all know it goes back to Revolutionary War. Um, in the Battle of Brooklyn, which is probably, you know, one of the lesser-known uh, battles in American history, actually. I didn't know a whole lot about the battle myself until actually coming here and digging into it. Um, 
But, uh, you know, fascinating history. Uh, it, of course, the fort is there to protect the, uh, the, the city um, at the Narrows, uh, and it was uh, became official uh, in 1825 when they led the first cornerstone, and the first unit actually was stationed there in 1831. Um, so a very fascinating history through the evolution of time to where we are today. Uh, through the Civil War, when uh, it garrisoned uh, multiple units um, and actually also served as a, pr- a prison uh, for politicians from Maryland and Confederate soldiers, to include General Lee's son, uh, which, again, I did not know until I got here to, uh, to New York City. Um, of course, it housed the, uh, the Coastal Artillery uh, Division, um, a separate branch at the time. Um, up until uh, the, the, the mid-40s, um, right after World War II. Uh, and, and then it has uh, evolved again up until the current, uh, current time, uh, where it basically serves as a, uh, a major accessions uh, facility for the U.S. Army, housing the second largest MEP station and the second largest Army recruiting battalion in the United States. Oh, really, because some of us may say, wait a minute, you know, back in— uh the 1830s, 40s, we might have been afraid of some invasion from England and defend the port. What is the reason for Fort Hamilton today in the 21st century? Well, again, it goes back to serving a major uh, population center here in New York City. So, and that's with our Sessions mission, uh, which ties to our readiness of our armed forces. So uh, we have a, a big mission here um, in recruiting um, and processing uh, service members that come into all branches of the armed forces um, but when you, again, when you look back um, historically at, at its mission uh, from its conception, which really goes back to the War of 1812 when they started building the fortifications in the Narrows in New York City to protect the city against a potential British invasion, uh, and the fortifications served their purpose then, and I think Fort Hamilton continues to serve its purpose now. Okay, Colonel, what's your personal background where you just didn't pop up as uh, no, I didn't. garrison commander. I where did you serve? I, I am a uh, commissioned uh, um, active duty regular army officer. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I grew up listening to stories uh, from my father who served in Vietnam and my grandfather who served in World War II. And I think growing up uh, that caught my interest in service to our country. And so I submitted an application in the mid, uh, in the early 90s to uh, West Point and was accepted, admitted to West Point, where I went to school from 1991 and graduated in 1995, commissioned an infantry officer. And I've served all over ever since. So I think I've moved probably 15 times um, over my 23-plus years in service. Uh, I've deployed uh, three times to Afghanistan, so I've got about 30 months there and about four months in Baghdad, Iraq. Um, Primarily a light infantry officer, so I've served uh, mostly in airborne uh, organizations, the 82nd Airborne Division, twice in command, company command and battalion command, and then I've served in the uh, 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vicenza, Italy as a major. So kind of been all over um, the world and the United States, my service. When you mention that, you know, like when you talk about all those tours and, and different deployments and whatever. How, what kind of toll does that have on your family? Um, it's, it's it's significant toll. And, you know, we always say, and people always come up to, you know, those of us that are wearing the uniform and, and they, they thank us. And I always have to remind people, you know, the spouses, the family members, particularly in deployments that stay behind, they, they, they bear a huge um, um, amount of the task um, as, as we serve overseas, they're the ones that are holding the fort down. They're the ones that are 
coaching children's soccer games or, or taking children to ballet lessons um, day in and day out. And they're also the ones that have to uh, experience the unknown. When I deployed in 2010, I left, and my wife was three months pregnant. When I came home a year later, my son was six months old. On my uh, uh, fourth deployment uh, to Afghanistan, I left for nine months straight. Uh, during that deployment, my wife had an accident, uh, dislocated her knee, couldn't walk, broke some ribs, and about the only thing I could tell her as she had a four-year-old was, basically, you're going to have to deal with it. I can't come home. So, you know, our family members, you, you know, a lot of times, like I said up front, uh, those that wear the uniform, we get acknowledged. But a lot of times our family members, our children, our spouses aren't rightfully acknowledged for what they also have to go through. And in my mind, they're the real heroes. Why do people volunteer today to serve in the U.S. military? You know, when I was around, I got drafted. But yeah, why, why do people today serve? I mean, I'm sure the reason is, is uh, kind of ranges across the spectrum. Um, you know, some, some are looking for an opportunity. Some um, truly out of a sense of service to our nation. Um, many grow up knowing friends who serve, parents who serve, um, and, and they have an aspiration to walk in somebody's uh, footsteps who they admire. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunities in service. And I think a lot of people recognize that with schooling, uh, with educational opportunities, um, both in the military and what the military can give you and also outside the military and the educational opportunities. So I think it's it's probably a wide spectrum. Um, it's definitely a personal choice for everybody. Um, but ultimately, it's about service. You know, and obviously it's going back a lot of years. But but I think the United States Army, when I was in there, it was a way for a lot of lower, poor people to get themselves into the middle class. They had the educational opportunities. You know, they had an opportunity to have a job sure. and be part of something. Yeah, sure. I mean, my personal experience, the one thing it did for me, it paid for my law school. And back then, the GI Bill was great because it paid for all yeah. my tuition, all my books, and about $500 a year yeah. over that. I mean, there's tremendous opportunities. And, and, and again, whether you serve for just a couple of years and decide to get out, and, and you know, a lot of people go back to school, um, they go to university. Some get out and they take their skills that they've learned um, in the military and they start su- successful careers. Um, and, and some are just looking for you know, a sense of purpose, and uh, they, they, they love the service to our nation, um, and they continue on. I can tell you when I was commissioned in 1995, I never thought I'd be sitting here over 23 years later in uniform. Um, I, I intended it on getting out. Um, I was going to do my five years of service, maybe one or two more years, um, and then get out and start a second career either in federal government or in the private sector. And I was actually in the process of that. And, of course, 9-11 changed quite a bit. Um, and for me, you know, as a young lieutenant as a, as a young captain, you know, a lot of it was about adventure. A lot of it was about, uh, you know, the air assaults, the jumping out of planes, the, the, the leading soldiers on maneuver live fires. You know, one 9 changed quite a bit. And as I think as I aged and matured, a lot of that kind of funness, if you will, wore off, and it became much more about service to our nation. Right. Now, if, so, if somebody were, let's say, graduating from high school now or in and out of college, do you think the military is a good option, a good career option? I think so, either out of high school or, or college. And, and um, I would encourage anybody to um, to take a look at it, to explore it. Um, we're, we're seeing nowadays um, the pool of individuals coming into the service are from a smaller demographic. And m- much of that demographic 
um, are those who are already in service. So, for example, you know, my son, who is now eight years old, as he grows up, statistics say that he is more likely to serve than perhaps somebody that doesn't have a connection uh, to the armed forces today. Well, I think one of the things, too, connection to the armed forces, when I was a kid, all your uncles, almost everybody you knew served right. in, in World War II. Right. Then, of course, less people served in Korea, less people served in Vietnam. Right. And now, percentage-wise, very few people have a connection to a person in uniform. I, I think so, and that's why I think a lot of those that are currently serving have brothers, uncles, you know, fathers, mothers— uh, who have served, and that pool is getting smaller and smaller. So it's it's almost kind of a, a self-reproducing system um, where those that we're drawing in come from families that have a history of service. Now, you mentioned your grandfather was in the 36th Infantry Division. He was, yeah. He fought in the 36th Infantry Division in uh, North Africa and Italy. Okay, and t- can you tell some of the campaigns he was involved in? So my grandfather was, he, he was drafted, um, like like millions of others in World War II. He, he uh, was from Texas, um, near a, a small town near Abilene, Texas, and uh, was drafted as a private, ended the war as a, as a major, um, and fought in the 36th Infantry Division. And, um, and he was in North Africa for a period of time, and then um, fought his way up through uh, Italy before uh, coming uh, wounded. Um, he actually crossed the Rapido River, which, as I understand, uh, you, you've got family that were involved in that as well. Um, a, a bitter battle um, uh, in which the Germans were able to push back the 36th after some bitter fighting. Um, but he he was uh, he, he was wounded eventually into the war. Um, in England um, as a combat engineer training other engineers getting ready to head over to uh, the Western uh, European theater. Did he talk much about his experience? He didn't talk much at all. He was the yeah. kindest, gentlest um, person that you'd ever meet. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Army. Um, he served in Korea and uh, also was an advisor early on to the French um, at the beginning stages of the Vietnam War. Um, but, but, uh, you know, not knowing any of that, you, if you just ever came across him, he would be the kindest, gentlest, uh, person, um, that you'd ever meet, but he never talked about his experiences in the war, not even to my grandmother. We're going a little far astray, but post-traumatic stress syndrome, why is it more of a problem now percentage-wise than it was to the World War II vets? Do you have any opinion? Um, you know, I don't know what the percentages are. I find it hard to believe it's more prevalent now than perhaps it was in World War II, and maybe you have a little bit more information on that. Well, if you met my father again, you'd just think he's a nice guy, yeah. no problems. Yeah. Life was good. And, and a lot of World War II vets that came back had a lot of issues. Um, I mean, you can go re- read a number of books um, um, that talk about World War II and vets that that uh, have come back that have experienced significant issues. Um um, in marriages and, and just their own personal mental health. Um, but I think today, perhaps there's more focus on it. Maybe there's more attention to it um, you know, with a better media, better technology. Um, the, you know, the character of war and how we fight war has changed. Um, so I, I, w- I would find it hard to believe that it's more prevalent in our veterans today than it was perhaps following World War II. But an interesting question. Yeah, no, it's, I've asked different people and I've gotten different yeah. answers, so it's always yeah. interesting to get the right answer. Yeah. All right, so what's up for Fort Hamilton uh, right now? What's going on? 
so no, we're we're in an exciting time. I I um, don't know if you're aware, but uh, the chaplains are now running a course at Fort Hamilton. So we've got a a resident course that's up and running. Um, it's been going on now for about the last six months. So we have a number of senior chaplains that are rotating through about twice a month um, for about a week. And uh, we've got a number of permanent chaplains that are now stationed at uh, Fort Hamilton. So we're excited about that. Um, and our asymmetrical warfare group is also uh, beginning these at the beginning stages of setting up uh, some training for Army infantry brigades um, on urban combat. So basically studying dense urban terrain with uh, senior leaders from Army infantry brigades, uh, and, they're, and they're using um, this area as kind of a case study for that. So, again, we're excited to provide them a platform and a venue for, for such critical training nowadays. Colonel, thank you for your service. Thank your family for your service, as you just mentioned earlier. And we hope Fort Hamilton's around for a few more years. Yeah, us too. I don't think it's going anywhere. We're, we're great, to, you know, excited to be here, and I appreciate your time. Okay. Great. Thanks. Father Paul Bolecki, Capuchin friar and medical doctor, established a missionary hospital in Lebanon to provide medical care to Christian refugees. He also helps relocate them to safer areas. Connors & Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, is hosting a special fundraiser to help Father Paul and his team purchase supplies, treat their patients, and help them find safe havens. Basically, Father Paul is the last resort for these faithful Christians in the Middle East who've been forgotten by most of the world. Join us on Thursday, November 15th at the Bay Ridge Manor at 476 76th Street in Brooklyn. Meet Father Paul, who'll tell you what's really happening to Christians in the Middle East. Call Monica at 718-238-6500 to reserve your place at this important fundraising event as all of the proceeds will support Father Paul's compassionate mission. 718-238-6500. Again, that's 718-238-6500. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. We're back. Again, it was very interesting to hear, you know, Alan's story because I've known Alan a long time. But I really don't, I really didn't know his story. And, you know, it's part of history and we should probably pay more attention to the, to the Vietnam War. Now, if you check on our Facebook page, you're going to see some pictures of different members of our family who served in the service. From Beth's side of the family, you have her grandfather, who was a, a training training officer in World War II, got his picture. We've got her father, who served briefly in Korea. On my side of the family, you got a picture of me when I was in the service in 1973. Uh, I have my father, who was in the service from 43, 44, 45. And my grandfather, who was in the Spanish-American War and World War I in the Merchant Marine. One of the things that uh, one of the stories we have in the family, and I don't know the whole story by any stretch, was that during we're the trying end to of, put it together. Right at the end of World War One, he was delivering supplies to the Tsarist government and through Archangel, which got frozen in, and then the communists or the Bolsheviks, I guess at that time, were trying to take those supplies, and there was a brief battle up in. Uh, almost the Arctic Circle and an archangel between the Bolsheviks and the U.S. government. And, you know, one time Khrushchev mentioned that in the, in the 1960s about the U.S. invading Russia. Nobody knew what he was talking about. And, of course, it was one of the questions was that event that happened. And, I mean, you know, I can't even I can imagine what the temperatures were in Archangel back in whatever, 1918. Well, your family, they were, what, what came back to your grandmother was that he was just going to be frozen in the winter because they didn't get out. 
And so they're sitting there with just a, a very few troops trying to keep the the munitions and whatever else they've got. They're trying to keep them from the Bolsheviks and from the Germans. No, I don't think the Germans were up in Archangel, but maybe I'm wrong. At the same time, you got a picture of my father, who was a World War II veteran. He served in the 36th Infantry Division, and he was in very heavy fighting during the invasion of Germany, crossing the Rhine River crossings. One understanding is that only 11 out of the 200 people in his company came out without a scratch, and he was one of those 11 guys. He was also one of the first troops that liberated Dachau in, you know, at, the, at the end of the war. So he, he went through a very tough time in World War II. You know, one of those things that didn't bother him at all. He had a very happy life after being uh, discharged from the service, had a bar, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Ran it for more than 30 years and was a you know a proud member of the community here in Bay Ridge. He was always proud to be from Bay Ridge. So I, I guess David Kincaid is telling us it's about time to go home. Oh, no. Right, bye-bye, everybody. See you next week. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, November 27th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 Third Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Then in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S on Wednesday, November 28th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and finally. Finally at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, on Friday, November 30th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.